Good morning, good afternoon, intrepid listeners. Welcome back to Your Dog's Best Life. I missed you all last week, and uh, that actually segues really nicely into what we're talking about this week, which is separation anxiety in dogs. <laughs> I, however, was not um, pacing, panting, drooling, chewing, barking. All right. I might have been barking. I don't know. Were you barking? I, I yeah. might have been. There probably actually was some drooling now that I think about it. (laughs) So in our our current climate of everybody has been forced into hermitage, um, there has been some discussion in the, the pet dog world of what will happen in six years when we're allowed to return to normal. And um, I'm just trying to be realistic here. And, (laughs) we are again allowed to leave the house will our dogs be able to adjust to not having us around um or will our cats have killed us by then for invading their space for that long (laughs) exactly the cats will be like get out and stay out we we want a divorce the the dogs are like please no 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 (laughs) change the locks on us while we're gone you're not coming back sorry um so separation anxiety is, it's a bit of a sticky wicket. It's one of those things that it's a, it's a label to get slapped on a lot of behaviors. I think um, it also terrifies the ever living daylights out of me as like a generic pet dog trainer. It's one of the things that I am most likely to refer somebody to somebody else for <laughs> I won't touch it because uh, let's be honest, at some point you have to leave the house, right? And um, a lot of the protocols that I am familiar with, which granted are probably at least somewhat outdated because I don't touch it, um, involve slowly working up to being able to leave the house. But in the meantime, like people got to work. Yeah, like you got to be able to go grocery shopping. You got to, and not everybody can take their dog with them everywhere. Um, Because apparently it's cruel to leave your dog in a car for three hours while you get groceries in Tucson when it's 109 degrees. Well, in Tucson, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it's not cruel after the first 10 minutes because your dog died. Yeah, this is true. Guys, please, the the rest is just stinking up your car. Please stop sending PETA after me. I knew that. That was sarcasm. That was the effect of (laughs) God. I can see the hordes at the gate Uh, now. (laughs) they're coming coming to get get me um but it is it's a serious problem it really like i think it has a huge negative impact on the human animal bond um which is a fancy way of saying you hate your dog really fucking quick if it has any of the symptoms of separation anxiety only you're not allowed to say that because it's socially unacceptable to say you hate your own dog um and it's it's overwhelming. The dog is miserable. The humans are miserable. The solutions are not quick usually. Um, So, you know, what's a dog owner to do? Yeah. So I think we start off first by, so the first thing is now I think veterinary behaviorists and behaviors are now looking at separation anxiety as a series of behaviors or syndrome rather than a diagnosis. So an, to, to drill down for those of you who aren't familiar with these terms, a diagnosis is I have 
uh, a specific thing wrong with me. Um, I have um, allergies. That's that's a diagnosis. Whereas sniffing and sneezing is a syndrome. That could be anything. Um, that they're they're trying to equate it like with a stomach ache. A stomach ache can be caused by anything. So what they're looking at in the syndrome is the behaviors that they're looking at are so that the one of the defining characteristics of separation anxiety is the word anxiety and casual destruction of your house by a dog is not separation anxieties casual destruction of your house by your dog often is your dog either hasn't learned that they can't do it they're bored mindless or it, the it's stuff that's available if i left my house and i left several certain of my dogs loose in my house and I left say a cardboard box on the floor, I would come home to confetti. Yeah. That dog does not have separation anxiety. That dog just had an opportunity to destroy something in my absence and was like, score, I'm now going to do the thing that I like to do. Same thing if I left expensive leather shoes, which are essentially rawhide in fancy form <laughs> on the floor. Yes. My, you know, um, perhaps a puppy would eat them. That does not mean the puppy has separation anxiety. It simply means they had access to the shoe. The key component of separation anxiety is the anxiety aspect of it. And you want to look at it more as almost a panic disorder. So the destruction you're going to see in your house is going to look much more like you accidentally locked a bear in yes. your house than that you accidentally locked a puppy in your house. So a puppy eats the couch cushions. A bear eats the couch. Yeah. yeah. And then the curtains. And then claws the doors. So one of the hallmarks of separation anxiety is destruction of, of the barriers that separate your dog from the external world. And we'll get into barriers and barrier frustration a little later. But the barrier is either going to be the crate. So if you come home and your dog has snapped all their teeth off and the crate is a mess and it's moved 20 feet across the floor, that's separation anxiety. Or, uh, yes, it gets more, it gets more yeah. complicated. Some dogs are actually claustrophobic. Yep. Um, but we're going to avoid that for the time being. <laughs> we're going to focus on the other. But let's say they get out of the crate and then they destroy the door. Right. That is separation anxiety. Um, I think, I mean, it, so for me. Things like that. That's I'm okay. sorry. As I say, things for, for me to look at for behave other behavioral issues versus separation anxiety is um level of emotional distress and level of physical destruction um and i don't mean of your house i mean of your dog which is disturbing to think but in my experience dogs with true separation anxiety are panicked and when an animal is panicked they do anything and everything to leave that panic include to include jumping through a window, um, chewing through a wall, uh, you know, digging until their toenails are gone and their feet are bloody. Um, it's it's a true feeling of they're going to die. Uh, and I think that that's, right. you know, that's part. And now, yeah, I'm sure that there are levels of separation anxiety. Um, there are dogs that, yeah. you know, are truly miserable and unhappy, but haven't reached the level of, I'm willing to claw my feet to bloody stumps. Um, so like for, 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 for instance, as a, uh, could be, but isn't separation anxiety. And this is where having 
a really good trainer slash behavior consultant person who knows how to ask the right questions can come in handy. So one of the puppies that I just delivered to its new owner and also delivered into this world, um, he's been vocal. He's been vocal since day one. God bless his fuzzy little brain. Um, and I'm super happy that he's going to a person with training uh, experience. But <laughs> so yeah. he went to his new home um, via airplane. We flew out of Phoenix. He flew in the cabin with me from Tucson to Phoenix, which is an hour and a half. He screamed nonstop in his carrier, which made, you know, the thought of putting him on a plane just delightful. Really fun. Yeah, yeah I'm sure the passengers would have absolutely been overjoyed terrifying. to listen to a puppy yeah, scream absolutely for terrifying. hours. But it was, it was nonstop screaming. Now, however, he was not panicked. He wasn't digging at the crate. He wasn't drooling. He wasn't vomiting. He wasn't, you know, pacing or he, he was just not happy in the crate. Um, thank God did fine on the flight gets to his new home. And of course, mom has to work, right? She's taken time off and she spent the first three days, three, four days at home with him trying to establish a pattern and a protocol. And the first day was ugly. The first day was ugly. He screamed and cried for a good portion of the day. So we're now a week in and he has I think she said like two 10 to 15 minute periods during an eight hour day where he will get vocal. She has a camera on him. This is how she knows. Um, and then he settles back down. So had she taken this puppy or talked to somebody about this puppy who didn't understand the difference, she could have gotten a separation anxiety diagnosis and it could have actually made things worse versus just realizing that the dog needed consistency and, you know, outlets and a schedule and a little bit of patience and understanding very well might have been going through a developmental period. Um, and that's not to say that he might not have problems later yeah, on. Right. Young. Yeah, he's young. Um, but it is to say we have to be careful what we slap that that uh, label on, which behaviors we apply that label to. Because um, it can get people in trouble down the road. I personally think so. So I've been, so I've talked to owners, obviously in the veterinary field, whose whose dogs they thought had separation anxiety, and then I, as a as a trainer, I've addressed cases that the owners thought were separation anxiety. And the first thing I'm going to say is I it is my belief that. True separation anxiety, and I'm going to define that as a dog who really just hates being away from the owner. That that dog is actually very rare. That most separation anxiety, the, the behaviors that we're seeing, so again, we're talking about separation anxiety as a stomach ache, and we're talking about the causes. So the cause that most people attribute to that is, it, that's why we have to kind of watch this, this word that we're using, is fear, anxiety, of separation from generally the owner. Those cases, in my personal experience, are incredibly rare. I've had one dog that I thought showed signs of separation anxiety. The rest have been not. They've they've either been dogs that were permitted too much, um, too much freedom to the house too early. Yeah. 
um, you know, young dogs who ate the plants or, um, or other, other things. And so we're going to, we're going to take a little bit of a dive into kind of what we know about separation anxiety and, and starting there, we're going to talk a little bit about if you think your dog is exhibiting signs where you can start so that you can find out if what you're seeing is really separation anxiety or some of the other behaviors that we see associated with separation anxiety, but don't actually carry the baggage of separation anxiety. So this year, um, some scientists, and I'm going to put a link in our show notes, but I, cause I can't, I'm not going to remember their names to be absolutely honest. I will say the name of the study cause it's long and sounds so <laughs> it's such a perfect name for a study. So the name of the study is called was developing diagnostic frameworks in veterinary behavior medicine colon. Here's a great word. Disambugating separation-related problems in dogs. Come on. That's a great name. Disambugating. So the study... Isn't that great? I had to practice saying it. (laughs) I guess I'm spelling it as I'm writing it in my notes. I'm like, crap, do I even know? I've never said this word in my life. When you're an an academic, you can't say clearing some shit up. (laughs) Yes, that doesn't sound professional at all. So the study study was done. So we always have to pay attention to how studies are done. So this study was a questionnaire study. And the way those works is they send out questionnaires to owners. In this case, the number of completed questionnaires they received back was somewhere in the region of 2,700. I've rounded down. I believe it's 2,787 or something like that. Um, that represented about 100 breeds. And what they did is then they separate, then they sent out with the questionnaire was 100, I want to say 100 plus behaviors, asking owners to describe the behaviors and how often they occurred and blah, 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 blah. And these were dogs that the owners had, were saying had separation anxiety. These were dogs, this wasn't just every person, it was people who responded back, yes, my dog shows the symptoms that we associated with separation anxiety. And these scientists separated the dogs into four, what they called four clusters. And when they went back and reviewed the four clusters, they named them, ready for this, scientists, A, B, C, and D. Damn, that's creative. So, I know. So so the first one, A, which represented about 17% of the dogs, was actual social panic. And exit frustration. So what that means is the dogs clawed at the door when the owner left, clawed at their crate. They wanted to leave the building and be with their owner. The social panic is the part we were talking about where they're just freaked out because their owner's left. So of these 1,700 plus dogs, only 17% have that were showing symptoms that we refer to as separation anxiety have what these scientists and I would probably agree is actual separation anxiety. These dogs are actually afraid when their owners leave and then try to go through the house to get back to their owners, which is logical. So they'll attack the door that you just left Uh out of. The second group, um, which is about uh, 29%, um, had what they called externally motivated destruction. And you guys can read the study. It's thousands of words and a lot of it's in, well, I read the title. (laughs) So so this is my interpretation, having read the study and some read some comments by other owners, other people, um, 
learned colleagues uh, about the study. Uh, we had a great conversation about this several months back on um, school. I can never get it. SOCS. I'll put that in links too, because they're a great online source. Anyway, the 29% externally motivated destruction is when dogs are frustrated because they can't get to stuff outside. So it could be birds, it could be cars, it could be strangers. They just don't want to be in. Yes. They just don't want to be inside. They just want to be outside. So it's not so much that they're freaked out about their owner being gone is that they, they want to go out. They want to go through the doors to get to the things. So those dogs will show behaviors at any outside. So windows, those are the dogs who run from window to window and scratch at windows. Um, that scratch at multiple doors. Then, of course, frustration leads to what we call, um, oh, for God's sakes, what do we call it? Oh, my God, my brain just completely went brain. When they redirect, redirect yes. dear God, redirected frustration and aggression, which is, I can't get through the glass door, but here's a pillow, so I'm just going to shred it angrily. Right. It, it's what we do when we don't kill our spouse. So, oh, did I say that out loud? <laughs> so or children or children or or so or any number of people that frustrate us on us on a daily yes yeah we're not allowed that we're not allowed to attack them so we we scream in the car to loud rock music or we speed or we we take our frustrations elsewhere and that is that is absolutely normal human behavior it's an animal behavior and dogs do it as well and that's why your couch falls victim to your frustrated dog when they can't claw their way through the window. So even if they don't appear to be clawing their way through the windows, um, but they're shredding the couch, that that could be the situation. The third group um, had the largest component of dogs, and that was 35% of the dogs. And they were externally motivated, but they were actually fearful. So these are the dogs who have underlying anxiety and these are the dogs who, honestly, what it is, is the world outside scares them. And when their owner leaves, they don't have that fallback position. And so they are scared of the external environment and they generally don't run to the door. They shred the things in the house because they're frustrated because they can't get away from the jackhammers and the extent and the ex um and the loud noises of city life, or that maybe you have an apartment and the noise is upstairs. So the noise and the sights and the sounds through the windows frighten these dogs. And without a human being there, their owner there to kind of serve as a backstop, they feel alone and frightened. And so they shred and destroy things again, out of that misdirected or redirected frustration. Mm -hmm. The last group, which is about 18%, um, have discovered that being alone is aversive because it's boring as hell. <laughs> um, I think we've all discovered that these last few months. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. We all have separation anxiety of this sort. We all completely relate to this. I, like, side note, the day that I could go and walk around the mall, even though there was like three stores open, just to be able to do something that familiar was like, oh, this is the best thing ever. It was stupid, but oh, anyway, <laughs> yes. No, I've been I've been trying to go. I'm like planning trips, and I'm like, oh, is Iceland close to America too? I'm like, dang it, um, the world is so right anyway. now. But I know, yeah, I know there are some places like Algeria and like the <laughs> places that you're like, who goes there on vacation? That's where you're exiled to, to if you just committed a crime and they don't have extradition. Say people that want to experience slave trade up close and personal. I don't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> Good. Oh, so anyway, so this last group, these are essentially the dogs who are bored. These are the dogs who lack the appropriate social um, or the appropriate amount of stimulation um, for the rest of the day or their day is too long. Um, this is what I would expect from my own dogs. If I, let's say I left the house going down to the sheep and I, for whatever reason, I left my dogs in the house and then I went down to the sheep and I bonked my head and I, um, was found 24 hours later. And so my dogs were left in my house for 24 hours of their own recognizance. Oh God, my stomach um, just flipped a little bit. Sleep. <laughs> and my dogs would probably sleep for the first five or six hours, maybe the first 10, but then they'd get bored. You know, Cody would probably jump on the table. Then she would discover the cabinets and she might discover a plate and then she might get on the sink. So it, she would just, it would be exploratory behavior followed by the casual discretion that happens when you discover you're bored and, and that your owner has left you to this behavior. Now, if I repeatedly did that, the casual behaviors would become self-fulfilling right. and she would continue doing it. So she would discover that she could knock over the trash pan every day or that she could shred um, anything that's left on the floor to her joyous content. Um, and so that's how something that, that would happen accidentally in, in a single situation could then become self-reinforcing, especially if the dogs are not permitted or allowed to have an appropriate outlet for these behaviors. Right. Um the other thing that these guys noticed, and this should come as a huge shock to no one, <laughs> is that the breed most commonly associated with separation anxiety was the Weimariner. Uh -huh. Yes. So, and if you think about the number off, of Weimariner. This is how much I've written off that breed. It didn't even occur to me. I was like, little white fluffy dog. And then you said that. And I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That, those are still a thing, aren't they? Yep. Hmm. Yeah. 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 And I don't, and that's the thing is, as because the study had 2,700 dogs, I'm sure some of them are older when people were still buying wine runners, but yeah. So if you think of how few wines there really yeah. are for them to be numeric, this isn't statistically the number one, it was numerically the number one dog represented. Yeah. So all the breeds that we see numerically of the 2,700 dogs, 107 of them were wimes followed by 100 being 100 of them being the most popular dog breed in America at least it was recently the labrador retriever so that tells you so i tell people beware of things like this labrador retrievers are the probably one of the most popular dogs in america yeah. so for every 100 labradors there's one weimariner that's so the fact that you had that there's that many of them that's a huge <laughs> so that tells you what you have to pay attention to when it comes to these sorts of numbers is it may not be relevant. I mean, if fact is, is if you have a million Labradors and a hundred of them has had social anxiety, that's immaterial versus having a hundred Weimaraners and 99 of them having social anxiety or having these behavior traits. So be aware anytime you see those kinds of, of numbers followed by, I believe the German shepherd, not uh -huh. a shock and weirdly whippets. Whippets. Another breed that you've got like four of on the whole. I mean, when was the last time you even saw a whippet? I haven't seen a whippet in forever. I've seen a couple of Iggies, but I haven't seen a lot of whippets. Huh. So, uh, and this study might have done been done in Great Britain. And so I'll have to double check. Oh, yeah, that would make sense too. Whippets are more popular in Great Britain, I believe, and in Europe than they are here. Yeah. 
Um, so anyway, so looking at these four, these four clusters, the argument made by folks who did this, this study is that most of these aren't anxieties per se. They're not, they're not born of terror. They're not born of fear. They're born of frustration. And, and I think some of that semantics, so I'm not going to get into it too. I mean, if a dog is frustrated because there's a barrier between you and the owner, but the owner just drove away, it, that's not terribly meaningful to how you train or deal with that dog because the door is always going to be there. But if you are dealing with a dog whose the barrier is the situation of their, they want to get to the outside noises, then simply creating a situation where the dog is or frightened of the outside noises, which is the two main, the two middle groups. And those two middle groups combined work out to, Oh my God, math on the fly. A lot. 30 plus 35 is math. 64% of the dogs we're actually reacting to external things and either frightened of them. So trying to flee from them, but unable to, or frightened of the, or excited by them and, and wanting to be outside with them. If you could, with those dogs, simply mitigate your outside external um, influences. Yeah. God, it's okay. <laughs> this is what happens when we record in the morning. I'm only one Dr. Pepper into the Braining day. is hard, um, period. Oh gosh, it's so but sad. here's the thing. I but mean, yeah, okay, so that's real stimuli. If you can reduce yeah. that, you might be able to mess with that to get away from some of these behaviors. Create your dog in a central room under a towel. But here's the thing, Done. too. Oh god, mid yawn because you said something about being tired. Um, <laughs> You're welcome. So that's you know, like you said, that's about roughly sixty four percent of the dogs. That is not to say that these dogs don't need help. Uh, oh no, they absolutely, still, absolutely need help. An, Especially the fearful. Yeah. Ones. It's still anxiety based and it's still a Royal pain in the ass to deal with um, because you know, the world does not bend to your dogs. Um, so, you know, yeah, you can, you can put them in a back room with a towel over their crate and leave a fan on and put the TV on and Amazon comes to your fucking door and knocks on the door for a delivery. Like there's always something that's going to happen <laughs> because we can't account yeah. for, you know, the entire world. Um, but, you know, it is, it's, I think, helpful for owners of these dogs to realize that it's, you know, not always something that they've done or could do to make it better. Like, it's right. it's sadly a symptom well, of dogs having to live in in our lifestyles right now. Right. And the other thing I think it's important to understand is so when we were talking earlier about the techniques used to treat separation anxiety, what they are is, is called counter conditioning. And counter conditioning is a fancy word that means simply teaching the dog in incremental amounts to slowly over time accept the fact that they're alone. And it's an exhaustive process. Mm -hmm. Like Emily was saying, it takes, it can take months. Well, who, who can stay away from work for months or take their dog to doggy daycare for months or to have people come in and sit with their dog all day for yeah. months. It's a very expensive proposition, but the great thing about this study is it shows that the number of dogs who are absolutely just scared of their owner leaving is actually a very small percentage. Right. 
it's it's only that 17%. So those dogs, yes, you bought yourself a lot of work and effort and time. And the other dogs, I'm not saying it's going to be easy because the other one of the other dogs has frustration issues, and frustration is an is can be an exhausting thing to work through with a dog as well. Yeah. And the other dog in the in the first three that we're talking about um, is a fearful dog, has generalized anxiety, and I'm a huge com- proponent of you've got to fix that dog so it doesn't live its life like that. That's not fair or appropriate for that dog, but that dog probably does not need a huge monster counter conditioning regimen for the owner leaving. What it needs is a long drawn out counter conditioning system for the external stimuli that are upsetting it, but that the owner can do and still have a life and leave their dog as long as they press the external stimuli in such a way that the dog has helped. And like, Emily was saying, yes, create the dog in the middle of the house, um, create the dog with a fan or white noise, or apparently their noises come in different colors. I didn't know there's brown noise and pink noise. Is there too. really? Um, I, learned. Yeah, I learned that in the IABC. I'm totally a geek. They have different pitches. I have oh, no well, idea. that makes sense. So, no, I, no clue. Not a clue. Uh, so anyway, um, but you can leave, you know, or leave the TV on you know, leave the TV on. So the dog has the concept that life is still normal. Right. Um, if you're a household very loud and there's a lot of commotion and chaos in your house and you leave and the house becomes super quiet. And so now they can hear every little stimuli outside the door. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a change. That's a huge difference. And so maybe, you know, part of the counter conditioning is you just leave some of the chaos around. Right. You know, you play the TV on downstairs and you have the kid in the upstairs play the rock station all day. Right. And, and, and you just yeah, keep, it sounds like keep the normal. dog is comfortable because that's normal. Right. And, and yeah. here's the thing, too, that I want to say for people that might be dealing with something like this um, and find that, oh, shit, you know, it's maybe it's not separation anxiety. Maybe it's one of those those two um, that we talked about, either the boredom or, you know, the anxiety of outside stimuli and not being able to control it. Um, There's nothing wrong with medication. There's absolutely, if your dog, if it's based on anxiety, if there is something about that dog's environment that stresses them out, there is a wide range of pharmaceuticals from over the counter to prescription that can help your dog while you work on things. Um, Or maybe just for life, like, it's, 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 there's nothing wrong with that. We are asking these animals to live in a vastly understimulated um, environment for them. Um, and, you know, given the current economic climate, not everybody has time um, or money or resources to provide doggy daycare to take them, you know, on enriching hikes to, you know, enroll in all the dog sport classes, all of these sort of things. Um, Steve, I'm going to push back on this. And that's, and that's okay. Cause what I, what I, the caveat to that is, am I saying you should go that route to avoid having to explore any of those? No, I'm not saying use that in place of, I'm saying if you need 
you know, if you live in an apartment and your dog barks nonstop and you're a threat of getting evicted, um, yeah, maybe talk to your vet about some meds while you work on something that can help your dog cope while you're gone during the day. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, because I, so I, because I'm not, so Emily and I are different and we are going to have a conversation one of these times where we just talk about our differences because I think that's yeah. important. I think it's really important for people to understand that all dog trainers disagree with all other dog trainers. Um, <laughs> and that, and that, right and that tells you, <laughs> and that tells you that it really is as much as we instill science into, into psychology, psychology whether it's human or animal is an incredibly complicated, muddy mess. And it does not respond like math Um, as much as, as Skinner likes to believe or liked, he's of course been dead probably for a hundred years, who knows um, that it's simply inputs and outputs like a computer. Uh, Psychology has proven time and time again in humans and animals that, that there's a, there's a whole chemical stool. There's, there's genetics. There's a lot going on in these dogs that we will, just like us, will never understand. Um, having said that, um, my I, one of the things I'm noticing about Emily and myself is Emily likes her, and this is not a this is not saying one is nope. better than the other. It is simply opinion, and she likes her drugs, yep. and I really shy away from drugs. Here's, wait, because can I, I sum it up in a real simple? And, and I'm, I, I know Please, myself. You're speaking for yourself. Yeah, no, I, I know myself well <laughs> yeah. enough to know. Yeah, I'm self-aware enough to know where this is coming from, and I will preface it by saying I'm an asshole. Um, <laughs> I, I think drugs are vastly underutilized because the average dog owner doesn't have the skill, the bandwidth, the spoon, the time, the energy, or the interest to do the training necessary. So, in the interest of the overall health and mental well-being of a dog, fuck yeah, throw some drugs at them because you sure as hell ain't going to do the training necessary. That's where that comes from. I just, and yeah. if it, and I can see that and it makes me sad, but it's probably yeah. true. And so I come from the, I come from the alternate behavior situation of drugs are for me, for most of my cases. Now, again, I'm taking anxiety cases, but I'm not taking serious aggression cases. Um, I, so I can't speak for aggression because I don't touch aggression, but when I'm dealing with dogs who have anxiety or the one dog that I had that we worked with that probably had a little bit of separation anxiety, I didn't think it had a lot. I think it had a little bit. Um, I did not recommend do- uh, drugs for any of those dogs. The The reason was, is that we were able to move forward with progress through training. And I really am horrified at the idea that people buy, because right now the positive only, here's my issue. The, I'm going to, I'm going to put the word positive only in air quotes because that's not a real thing, but I'm going to define it in a second. (laughs) The folks who like to heavily rest upon a positive modality of training, which is myself included. Mm -hmm. I'm not, that is who I am. And I believe Emily, that is who she is to a large extent. These groups of people and all the young little kids coming up in that mental, in that philosophy, in that dog training schema have learned that the best dogs to train using that modality are these high drive breeds. Border Collies are number one. 
followed by Australian shepherds and um, depending on where you live, Kelpies or so these these herding breeds. And so what's happening is these people are getting these dogs. They are understimulating these dogs and then they're drugging the shit out of them and it pisses me off. If you don't have the time to take care of your border collie and now it's become a psychotic mess, give the dog away. Yeah. You are, don't drug it into a stupor because you can't provide it the life it needs. That is, it is inexcusable. And I see too many. And the problem I'm seeing is I'm seeing the lockstep between these two modalities. If you speak to a quote unquote balanced trainer, and those are the people who are going to use pressure and um, some tools, you know, choke chains, prongs, shock collars, but they could just use pressure release. They're going to use more positive punishment and negative reinforcement in their training. Those are technical terms. We'll just, we will definitely provide information on what those mean in our show notes. Um, What it means is they aren't going to be cookie pushers as much as the other group of people. Those folks don't run to medications first. They run to medications last. And the other folks who are buying every border collie in the country because it's their next agility dog, only they don't have the time after all. Those are the folks who are running to drugs first. And my problem is I'm feeling that drugs, because drugs are, we know is a crutch for humanity, period. I mean, we know coming from the veterinary world, well, can't you just give it a shot? <laughs> no. I mean, how many times have you had come in a, a complicated allergy case? And they're like, well, the last vet just gave it a shot. And you're like, oh. Okay, that was steroids. <laughs> and that's that's not the way to go. Um, we have to do this. But the this was fifteen hundred steps involving, you know, maybe a food trial and maybe this and changing habits and essential fatty acids and adding cyclosporine or you know what have you. And the owners look at this pile, this list of things and their dogs scratching and they're like, but the shot works. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. And this, can and, be, you're saying- and this can be its own, literally can be its own podcast. And if we're not careful, it will be because we're going to dive <laughs> down that rabbit hole right now. Um, right now, find a piece of paper and a pen and write down drugs versus not drugs. So we have a subject the next time we're like, what are we going to talk about this week? Um, the the thing that I want people to consider when it comes to separation anxiety, first of all, or, or any of its, you know, manifestations thereof. um, If you think you're dealing with that and, you know, you've talked to a trainer and you've tried behavior modification, um, or if you needed an immediate, like, something's got to change. Cause let's be honest, generally by the time people seek out a trainer for dog behavior problems. Um, and I mean, dog behavior problems, not puppy class and basic obedience. Uh, by the time they seek out a trainer, they're at their wits end. They're done. They need a solution. Um, yeah. no, I've had people just hate their right. dog by the time they're coming to me. They, they hate so, them or they're scared to death. of their Absolutely. Dogs. So my point is keeping that in mind and saying, hey, why don't we try some event drugs? And event drugs meaning they're not systemic. They don't stay, you know, it's not a daily medication. It's a, I have to go to work for eight hours and I'm, you know, my neighbors are ready to kill me. Here, let me medicate you this one yeah. time. Um, 
we need to make sure. And those are always appropriate. Right. Those we are need all, to make in sure my opinion, because that that's available to them yeah. as a resource and that we're not steering them away from it in a situation like this, because if they are coming to you, no, and I yeah. yeah. And if they are coming to us, I use us loosely, loosely, um, if they're coming to a trainer, if they're seeking a trainer's help, we need to make sure, ethically speaking, that we are not closing off uh, methods that can help them mitigate this situation because it is stressful. Um, and they are at their wit's end by the time they get to us. Um, and I don't think we do anybody any favors on on that regard by guilting or shaming or anything like that, which is not what I'm saying you're doing at all. I'm just saying as a... As a um, industry as a whole, it's something that we need to look at. And I mean, if they've, if they've reached out to you as a trainer, they're already willing to, you know, hopefully put in some time and effort on behavior mod. So, you know, it's not like, it's not like you're the one prescribing the drug. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a team effort, but um, I just, I, you know, I want people, dog owners to know that that's, that could be part of the solution. So to be open to it, to keep, to keep, you know, that as a possibility and not see it as just to see it as another tool in the toolbox and not as a, a failure or a crutch or a bandaid or, or anything like that. Um, well, and it's also not a panacea and it's not a replacement for the hard right, work. Right, right. Um, and that's where I have issues is if you drug your dog into a stupor, yes, he's well behaved, but he's a house plant. And, and that's, that's the, that's the issue. So I have no problem using, so we, we here in Southern Arizona, if people don't, aren't familiar with the area, we have, well, we should, <laughs> we haven't this year, but we theoretically should have horrendous summer storms that we call the monsoon season here. And it is late evening cloud buildups with ridiculous thunder and lightning and, and uh, what we call microbursts of, of wind that take off people's roofs. And it is very tumultuous and very loud and very terrifying. And it comes out of nowhere. And to counter conditions, storm phobia is incredibly difficult because you can't replicate a lot right. of it. the smell of rain, the sound of wind. So we have dogs who have storm phobias and I own border collies who are overrepresented when it comes to noise phobias. And I am absolutely a proponent of let's you, we are in the middle of the, a gnarly, scary storm here have a nice anti-anxiolytic tranquilizer and you need to sleep this off because to be in that state sucks and it's not appropriate. Right. And as a trainer, I know that counter conditioning storms with a dog who already has a pre-existing storm condition phobia is very hard. I cannot replicate it and I can't control it. And so in those cases, absolutely. I love drugs. They're powerful and they're immediate and they, they are very functional. And if I have a dog, so I've had, I had a dog who was going through counter conditioning and anxiety work with me and the owners moved. And so on top of the dog's generalized anxiety, the dog was doing much, much, much better, but the moved, you know, boxes right. and different housing and right. the, oh my God, the dog's brain kind of fell out. And, and so I said, you need to go talk to your veterinarian your dog needs a short-term yeah, solution to absolutely. this while yeah. he deals with the movement. But on the other hand, the dog that I thought or I think has a little bit of 
the beginnings of separation anxiety, I did not recommend medication for because two, two reasons. The first is that absolutely this dog would have been, would have been, was doing well with the training. The second was I saw the owners reaching for this and just gorking the dog as being a better solution. And I didn't think that was fair to the dog. So I didn't offer that as a solution because I didn't want the dog to live. I didn't want the owners. The owners are, were always on the verge of quitting. And the last thing I wanted to do is have them have success with a drug when that wouldn't have been better for the dog. Well, and that's, you know, that's my opinion was the dog would be better. That's where it comes back to, like you were saying, you know, that it's, it's a very fluid gray area. You have to have a pretty good hold on both the, where the client's at mentally and where the dog's at mentally. And that can change from situation to situation, week to week. Um, You know, I think that dogs with true separation anxiety, dogs that truly panic when they're left alone, Um, I think they need meds. Uh, They probably need a cocktail of meds and they will probably be on it for the rest of their life because I think that that falls under true mental health issues. Um, uh, And, you know, and depending on, depending on the human situation, and let's be honest, that's, that's a huge part of the equation because they're the ones with the thumbs and they're the ones that buy the kibble and, um, depending on the human situation, you know, that's got to be taken into account too um, when it comes to that human animal bond and how they, how they feel about their dog in the meantime, you know, and if they're willing to put in the time and they, and and they have the skill set and the ability to put in the training hours necessary, uh, then my God, by all means, jump in both feet. God bless. Those are the clients we love, you know? Um, Yes. Well, well, theoretically, those are the ones we love. (laughs) Yeah, no, they're the ones that I prefer, certainly. So so to go back, because this is an interesting thing that I also wanted to talk about when it came to separation anxiety, is that human-animal bond. So when when psychologists looked at, so human beings can get separation anxiety too, um, in little kids. And some is normal because obviously little kids weren't designed to be left alone. I mean, I always tell people, if your puppy screams when you walk away, because that's puppies because it knows that it's a puppy and it'll get eaten by the first monster that comes down the lane. So yes, puppies naturally are fearful of being alone because that is not a natural situation for a baby animal to be in, is to be alone um, without other puppies. So that is that is a pretty normal behavior. So in human beings, we they also see separation anxiety, and they see it in as part of the the I was going to say human animal bond, but I guess children are humans. Um, the, as as the the bond between the parent and the child, and there are certain bonding styles or types that causes anxiety in the children Uh and they narrowed the two types down and I wrote it down. So bear with me a second while I ruffle through my notes because I knew I'd forget because I have the attention span of a gnat on crack Um, is the kids were ambivalent or avoidant. Those are the two non good (laughs) 
attachment styles to parents. And the ones that they found was the worst was the ambivalent. And so we're going to go back a little bit because one of the things I think is very important to understand, we talked about frustration being part of this. We talked about genetics being part of that because obviously uh, Weimaraners are wildly overrepresented for the, their numerical state in the world. And so we know genetics are part of it, but I also believe the third tier of the problem that we see is the bond that the dog has with the human. And what, what they found to some extent in humans is that if your dog, um, if your human child feels ambivalence towards your handling of their behavior. So the best way to be describing it would be the way I'm going to describe it because I'm taking this from other people. So I'm putting words in their mouth. So if I screw this up, don't come charging at psychology today and say, this is what she said. I'm not a psychologist. What I read this as meaning when I looked at it, the way I look at the way handlers handle dogs is We've all seen the owners who get frustrated and upset with their dogs and throw random commands at their dogs and put voice pressure on their dogs and their dogs just never quite know how to ground themselves with their owner. Those are the dogs that these people are describing when they're people being having ambivalent emotional attachment to their owners. They quote unquote love or are attached to their owners. There is an attachment there, but the attachment is very anxiety producing. Well, and it's, I think, and it's, the argument, I think it's too, it's you provide food and occasionally you're nice. So I like you, but I also can't predict when the hell you're going to lose your mind over something that I don't understand. So I also kind of, don't like you. Right. And they don't know what any big given behavior is going to produce vis-a-vis um, consequences. Right. So, so the, so the, owners, so when the I, owners that say it's okay for the dog to jump up on some people, but get pissed when they try to jump up on grandma, those dogs are going to be right. real confused about where their, where their worth lies. Exactly. And so those dogs, you're already going to see if they are, especially if they're predisposed, you're going to see heightened levels of anxiety for the dogs who are predisposed to anxiety. And you're going to see, you're going to see heightened states of frustration for the dogs who are more likely to show frustration behavior because they're, they're living in a world that they cannot predict. And lack of predictability is a huge issue when we deal with, especially with anxiety and frustration in dogs. And so when we're talking about these four styles of, of separation anxiety, you can easily see how a dog who is not certain of their situation vis-a-vis their owner, who is their primary caretaker, that is the, that is the, that should be your lodestone. That should be the dog's ground. If the person or people who are the dog's ground, who are the dog's home base, complete. Yes. They're this thing that creates stability in the dog. If that is unstable, then yes, the dog is obviously going to exert more energy being frustrated with external stimuli, more uh, frightened of external stimuli, more 
um, upset about the owners leaving and more upset about the owners returning than a dog who knows everything is kosher when the owner is here. So that would probably bleed into everything is kosher when they're gone as well. So I think that there are three stool, three legs to the, the, the stool that we're referring to as, as separation anxiety. Genetics, well, you can't help that. I mean, don't, don't buy a Weimaraner, but okay, but it's going to happen to some dogs and, and you can't always predict. So the genetics are pick a good dog. Well, good luck with that. The second is, you know, address those, um, address your relationship with your dog. Mm -hmm. Uh, Make sure that your dog knows what is expected when, and, and that will help lower frustration and lower, um, the anxiety that they're, they're dealing with. And then the third is those four components that we talked about earlier that, that create the anxiety in the moment for the dog. So I think there are three stool, three legs to the stool. And if we exclude the one of just don't pick certain breeds and good luck and cross your fingers, cause that's not, <laughs> that's not helpful to anybody. Um, and we just look at the two remaining components you know, obviously, well, and then we keep, we keep leaving out the one that's the dog is just bored. Okay. For the dog who's just bored people exercise your damn dog, entertain your dog. I mean, you can listen to any one of our podcasts and we're going to have said that. Right. Right. I mean, every one of our podcasts comes back to take your dog out and let your dog dog. So excluding that portion, then you're dealing with a dog who's absolutely terrified of you leaving the dog who's absolutely terrified of the external environment and wants to kind of huddle into their world or the dog who is wanting to go out into the external environment because that's where the fun is or that's where they want to engage other people. Um, though, and those dogs, you can see kind of the line where you'd want to start heading for those dogs to help them, to help them cope, excluding of course the one, where they're truly frightened of the human being because that's counter conditioning and that's, that's a long haul. Yeah. And, and that is a good place for medication because people do have to go to work. Right. And so if you can't, if your dog is inappropriate for doggy daycare, and at some point we'll have to have a whole conversation about doggy daycare. Um, if your dog is inappropriate for doggy daycare or the doggy daycares in town are inappropriate for your dog, which is in my opinion, probably more likely, or you cannot afford to have people come in all day and hang out with your dog because you're a normal human being, um, then absolutely you, there's nothing wrong while you're working through the other underlying issues and you're creating stability and confidence in your dog. Yes. You're going to have to probably give medication to your dog because you can't quit your job. Yeah. And cause you got to afford people like me and Emily. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I mean, the importance of a good beginning for a dog cannot be overstated. Um, and so, you know, the one thing I find with people that have had to deal with any form of separation anxiety, whether it was true separation anxiety or just, you know, a, a derivation thereof, they they tend to shy away from the whole adopt um, an adult dog or an older dog kind of situation. Um, Not always, but a lot of times this happens in, in shelter dogs and it could be one of two things. It could be 
being raised in a shelter, which is a really crappy environment for a dog to be raised in. Or it could be that they were brought to the shelter because of these behaviors, because they were raised in a less than ideal environment to begin with. Um, But whatever the case, a lot of times these owners, the next time around, go looking for a solid, stable dog because it's really emotionally exhausting to deal with these problems for 10 to 15 years. Um, So, you know, I can't, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to find a a puppy or a dog with a solid beginning and a solid raising who has learned how to be on its own, who has learned coping mechanisms, who has learned how to self-entertain in a non-destructive way. Um, You know, and those are all things you're going to want to look for if this isn't an issue that you want to have to address or deal with. And obviously nothing's a hundred percent, but it's a really good start um, you know, so something to consider moving forward as well as, you know, your breed choice, not Weimaraners, um, would be, (laughs) I know, and I'm sorry if you love wines, I, I guess I sort of get it if I squint one eye and look sideways. You don't really get it. You're just signed to say uh, that. (laughs) But also like, Jesus Christ, know your breed predispositions and do something about it. That's a whole nother podcast. Um, yeah. But as if, if you're a Joe Schmo dog owner, don't feel guilted that like I have to go to the shelter and adopt a dog or I'm a bad human and I'm going to hell. Like you probably were before that anyway. And that's really just going to make your life on earth miserable. So <laughs> just, just, the, just icing on yeah, the cake. Yeah. <laughs> so just don't think that that's going to be what saves you. Um, and it's okay to want a solid, stable dog. Just know that you're probably going to pay more than a $75 adoption fee for it. And you're going to, have to do the research. So, because yeah. um, a, a, a purebred dog is not a well bred dog. A, a dog who comes from a list of champions. I've always loved this. My, his grandfather was a champion. Well, A, a champion of what? And B, confirmation does not have anything to do. Confirmation is how they look. Confirmation has nothing to do with temperament. Confirmation is so, not comprehension. Just because your dog looks pretty doesn't mean it's right. not dumb as a box of bricks. Or mentally unstable or insane in some other way or filled to the rafters with 1,500 genetic issues. Yeah. So well-bred and purebred are not, they're not the same. Most well-breds happen to be purebreds because people are going to put the time and energy more so into a purebred dog than a backyard dog. But to be absolutely honest with you, this and this upsets the AKC. And, and this was a, a, a direction I felt the veterinary community should probably look into. If you have a dog who lives incredibly well with a family and it's genetically mentally sound and you breed it to another dog that's living really well in a family, That is probably a well-bred dog, even if it's quite, quote unquote, a backyard bred Uh dog. And that dog is more than likely more stable than the backyard bred out of a, that you found in the, or than the pup, you know, the the puppy you found at the puppy store from a mill where the dog's temperaments haven't been looked at in 15 generations because they live in crates. So honestly, the mutt that you find that your neighbor bred Uh that you know lives with 15 kids 
And the, the dad, <laughs> the sire, didn't just jump the fence, but he also lives down the road with another 15 kids. And they're both stable and working well in a family. And you happen to have that lifestyle. That's your dog. Yep. That is the perfect dog for yep. you. You don't have um, to go pay $1,000. Doodle. Well, those, yeah. Yes. I mean, there's a reason they're so freaking popular right now. There are some really nice doodles. Now, there are some schizophrenic idiots out there, right. but, and they're, I think, wildly overpriced. But um, because I think they started off with kind of people using their backyard bread, live in the family dogs um, before it became a moneymaker. And then it just went back the same way they always do. But if you, so, so pay attention to that. And, and I'm going to, go on a limb and say purebred is not the answer as much as well-bred is the answer. And again, well-bred can be, and I'm going to be pilloried for this. It can be the mutt yep. to the mutt. Yep. If both mutts are free of major genetic problems and are living happily in that kind of lifestyle that you want to lead. That's a big thing. We will talk about that in a different rabbit hole about getting dogs that live in the same lifestyle you are in, not, what you think you would totally different lifestyle and hoping for the best. Um, but so that's where you start, but most people already have the dog and they already are dealing with the anxiety. Now, having said that, um, your friend and now my friend Nita, who we interviewed two Two podcasts ago, she just started an online Facebook group, Facebook group about building resilience in dogs. And it might even be called building resilience and dogs. we're almost as creative um, we will, as scientists. <laughs> yeah, she just, well, I just got the invite, I believe yesterday. Yeah, I think it's a brand, brand new group. But anybody who's interested, guys, if you have a dog who has anxiety of any kind, this group, I know most of the people in this group, and there are some fantastic trainers yeah. in this group. Yeah. Um, and so you've got some really great brains and great tools already with this group being all of one day old. I will add that link to the show notes. It's a group you have to be a, I believe you think you have to be like, she has to let you in. Yes. Um, you may need to be invited. But, um, so if that's the case. Yeah, that part I don't if you know. Need, I'll talk to her. But yeah, if, I was going to say, if you need to be invited, I'll talk to her and one, of, one of us and we can, we can hash it out. But um, Right. Because I'll reach out to her and find out. Um, and she can maybe just put, you know, maybe she'll have a question on it. And you could just say that you heard about it here. But I have a feeling that's going to be a really good, from what I've already read, I think it's going to be a really high quality uh, group for for specifically building resilience. And be aware that resilience is the flip side of the coin of anxiety. Whenever we talk about anxiety and and separation anxiety is just a form of, of anxiety. And in most cases, in this case, what we're talking about is forms of almost frustration. Um, the flip side is always going to be resilience and resilience is a multi-tiered beast. Resilience is not just being unafraid. Resilience is also being able to handle frustration. Um, and, and, and being able to tolerate setbacks. So whether the, you could be a very confident person who the second you're de- you're dealing with those clam wrapped products, you know, plastic oh, that you geez. need an ax to get into becomes a flailing maniac. That's a lack of resilience too. So you can be completely confident, but lack resilience to frustration. Yep. So resilience is not just 
about building tolerance to things that are scary and building confidence. Resilience is also building the ability to cope with frustration and setbacks in life. And those are absolutely different pieces of a puzzle to make the whole dog a stable being. Um, and so under, understanding that's kind of an important component as well. So um, yeah, if you're dealing with a dog, so let's go back and kind of go with some very basic tools to help folks who might be dealing with a dog who are showing these symptoms. Again, we're not talking about, we're not going to tell you guess which one it is, <laughs> which of the four categories your dog falls under. That is why you need trainers yes. or behaviorists. Yes. So and, if and, your dog oh, shows these And symptoms, I'm going to say, I'm go going to say behaviorists. I love veterinarians. People know we are both vet techs. I support the veterinary community 1000%. There are not a lot of veterinarians that have enough behavioral mm -hmm. no. understanding to be able to tell the difference in a case like this. So if you think that you are right. dealing or could be dealing with actual separation anxiety, I urge you to make the investment to visit a veterinary behaviorist. A veterinary behaviorist is board certified in behavior, not one who says, oh, I do behavior cases. They, they, actually, they actually test and pay a lot of money um, to be able to handle cases like this. And because if it is actual separation anxiety, you're going to need them in your side anyway. You're going to need that resource in your corner 100%. So this is one of those cases where so, that that's an investment worth making. Absolutely. Or a good trainer. Because yes. I, it is my opinion that a, a very skilled trainer is just as good as a behaviorist. And again, that could be a conversation that could be a different rabbit hole we go down. Um, these, most of these train, most good trainers, high quality trainers have been around the block for a long time. They've been training that whole time. The veterinary behaviorist has been in school. So, um, so go to one or the other. Um, I'm going to tell you, go, avoid quick fix trainers. Um, you know, if they're going to try to tell you that they can get solutions in 15 minutes or, or 15 days, or I'm going to tell you that's bullshit. Go to a trainer who's going to take the time to drill down, find out where the dog's problems are. And yes, it is going to be time consuming because they're going to have to build a framework to help your dog cope either with the stress of the fear of you leaving or the stress or fear of the things outside them externally, or they're going to have to have to have to work through the frustration of the barrier of the car, the door, or if they are fearful of the actual crate or the frustration of not being able to get to go outside and attack the monsters. So all of that is going to take time. So the place I'm going to tell everybody to go is first pay attention to your dog and make sure you set your dog up for success. A one-year-old dog should not be left alone in your house if you like the stuff in your house <laughs> for hours at a time. Uncrated. Um, depending on the, right. Dep yeah, I'm sorry. Yes at large, at large in your house. Locking it in the bathroom is one thing. Locking it in a crate, that's fine. Putting an outdoor kennel, putting an indoor kennel, locking it someplace safe, whatever. But if you want your stuff in an hour, that's fine. But if it's 12 hours, I'm going to go on a limb and say that is too much for most adolescent dogs. Dogs hit adolescence between 10 months and 14 months, depending on the breed. That is like leaving a teenager alone at your house for a week and expecting everything to look kosher when you get home. Right. It could happen. 
but it's probably unlikely. There will definitely be some random beer cans that weren't there before and possibly a little bit of rooms that might smell a little more like cigarette or weed smoke than they did before. So don't leave a young dog alone in your house. Don't leave a recently adopted dog alone in your house. Don't leave a dog that you wouldn't trust absolutely alone in your house for hours upon hours at a time. And honestly, I'll be really frank with you. I don't leave any of my dogs at large loose in my home as a rule of thumb. Now there were dogs I did, I used to leave, um, and they were fine. But the problem is, is that, you know, if they had diarrhea, then I got to come home to that and it could be in places I didn't want Mm -hmm. it. Or if they had vomiting that I could come home to that. Um, things can happen. And I just, it's, I've found over the years that it's probably, it's preferable. I mean, I lock the two border collies in the, in the bathroom. I don't, I don't have crates in my house, but they're like locked in the bathroom. So the destruction, and I had to pick up the trash bin because Cody is a toilet, any paper, any paper paper product is going to fall prey to Cody. So if I left her loose and she discovered the office, well, I wouldn't have to do taxes for a very long time because she would have eaten all the checks. Well, and here's the thing. Here's the thing, too. So (laughs) later is two and a half. Tag is 11. And Mort doesn't count because he's five pounds. Um, (laughs) What can you do? (laughs) They get crated when I'm gone for a number of reasons. They get crated because, A, that's what they're used to. It's their their safe space. They get crated because I don't have to worry about what they're going to get into while I'm gone. They get crated because this is, you know, awful, but also true. If somebody breaks into my house, I don't have to worry about them shooting my dog because my dog, you know, tried to bark at them. If my house is on fire and the, and the, and the fire department shows up, they don't have to worry about not that they would, but they don't have to worry about digging a dog out from underneath the bed. They can go and pick up the crate and haul it out of the house, set it in the driveway, and my dogs will live. Um, it's the same reason I crate my dogs in the car. Like, there's a safety aspect to it that goes beyond just, I don't want my furniture. Yeah, yeah. I don't want my stuff destroyed. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that is that is absolutely part of it as well. But, you know, it's there's more to it than that. Is it? For me, and I know it's not for everybody, and that's fine. Like, cool. Um, but you're to, not to each their own. Absolutely. And honestly, the the for the most part, I would say the people that are okay doing that aren't having this issue. So it's not even it's not even on their radar. Like, they have the dog that lays around for ten hours a day, comes home, plays ball for five minutes, and goes back to laying around. You know, or is just naturally. Not yeah, no. naturally non-combative in the way of human nature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the first, so so to wrap that up, don't just make sure that. And I, I, I'm the same way with newly adopted dogs as well. My rule of thumb is if you come into my house, and granted, I have I have nice stuff, and I want to keep nice stuff. Um, if if a dog comes into my house, regardless of their age, they're not permitted to be alone in my house at large in my house for a full year. And if they're a puppy, I'm going to go out longer, probably closer to a year and a half. If I had a large breed puppy, like a, like a Labrador retriever or a golden retriever or a great Pyrenees, I might go out over two years. Well, Um, and the thing, because the the flip side to that too, for, for others that we know is, um, I don't know how many surgeries have you insisted on when they pulled underwear and socks out of a nine month old lab or a year and a half year old lab? 
because it was yeah, left. We removed a D battery from a nine month old yeah. lamp. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, and a basset. Yeah. And, and it's like, I immediately go to that sort of thing. Like, I had a friend over the other day that was feeding uh, his dog pot roast, and I was like, um, do you know how much a pancreatitis bill is? Because I wouldn't be doing that if I were you. Like, so there's there's the risk analysis portion of your and my brains that might be a little more highly attuned than the average the average pet owners as well. Well, and we don't want an accidental sing- single learning mm-hmm. event. Um, you know, yes. the, the one time you leave the dog, you know, you've left your dog for six months and everything is fine. And then one time you leave the dog and you leave a bucket of of KFC bones in your trash and your dog starts snorfling around the trash and somehow accidentally for the first time ever knocks it over and eats an entire bucket of KFC bones. Now, assuming that doesn't end up in an emergency veterinary bill of a couple grand, um, it just ends up with some messes on your rug. That dog is now a committed trash dog. That dog is never... (laughs) probably never going to be reliable bound trash again because the dog pulled the lever in the casino one time and won a Corvette. Yep. Yep. So good luck breaking that dog of that habit. So rather than me trying to break the dog of the habit, I simply am living in the house with the dog at all times. And if they start when I'm in the kitchen with them, because they're not, when I say at large in my house, I mean, my dogs stay in the room I'm in. I don't permit dogs to cruise the house when I'm in a different room. If I'm sleeping, you're upstairs. If I'm downstairs in the living room, you're downstairs in the living room. If I'm in the kitchen, you're in the kitchen. So I'm not permitting dogs to cruise around my house because that's how you discover the dog who's mostly housebroken, which is kind of like mostly pregnant. That's not a thing. You're either housebroken or you're not housebroken. There's no middle ground. And so I don't want to discover that. Across the room. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, or the dog who, you know, so if I'm in the kitchen with the dog and suddenly they smell all the fat that I poured off of, you know, the roast beef the other night and they're snorfling around the trash, I can go, hey, hey, get out of that. Go lie down. And, and if I do that enough, they're like, okay, you don't, don't pay attention to the trash. And so when I do leave them after right. a length of time, they're not going to bother with the trash because they've never been reinforced for it. And in fact, every time they've gone near it, I've gone, go lie down, leave yeah. it alone. So they, they've been associated, they've associated the trash with, well, th- nothing here pays. So there's, it might smell good, but there's nothing beyond that. So, you know, so the countertops, a lot of things in the house smell good. So the first thing is really before you start thinking your dog has um, separation anxiety, really look hard at your dog's skill set in the house, even when you are home. I mean, even if you are, when you're home, if the dog occasionally grabs a shoe, then that means your dog doesn't know that shoes are off. Allow me to, allow Um, me to rephrase. If you think that your dog has separation anxiety, take a minute and look at your training skills (laughs) and see if it's maybe that you don't have the ability to set boundaries and rules and regulations and follow through with them and make sure everybody in the house is following through with them. And if you're married, good luck. Yeah. Good luck with that. Or your dog isn't mature enough. 
We, no matter how good a trainer you are, if you have a teenage child living in your house, I don't care what kind of parent you are, you've got a teenager living in the house. Felonies are going to be committed. <laughs> either by, either so, by parent or child, depending on the day. <laughs> so, yeah, things are going to go, things are going to go down that were not anticipated. That does not mean you're a terrible parent. It simply means that you're living with a teenage child. And a dog between the age of nine months and about 18 months, depending on breed, um, is going to go through that phase. And those dogs are the ones who suddenly discover that's when they discover the KFC. And now you've got a lifelong trash bin dog or a dog who like discovered that if you leave the closet halfway open, there's a lot of salty, sweaty, smelly, wonderful shoes to chew Uh up. And now the dog, well, this didn't, it came out of the blue when he was a year and a half old. I'm sure it's separation anxiety. No, he was a teenager. He was exploring and he was offered offered an opportunity. You don't buy a, a teenage child a Ferrari and wonder why they get speeding tickets. Yes. Yeah. It started when the kid was 17 years old. Well, that's when he got access to the freaking Ferrari. You get, him a, you get so, him a 1985 Ford Tempo and you say, good luck. <laughs> with two, with two bad pistons. And, and, and here's your triple, <laughs> here's your triple A subscription. Um, yeah, <laughs> good luck yeah. with that you might as well just rent a tow truck to haul you around town that's, that's so lovely, um, um if you don't want a counter surfer keep your counters clean yeah well guess what i'm gonna have a counter surfer no yeah. just keep your dog next to you and never let them learn yeah. i mean it's just very simple if you're in the kitchen they don't get to jump on the, the counter and if they're never permitted to jump on the counter and they're never reinforced for jumping on the counter when you do leave, I mean, don't leave a filet mignon sitting on the counter. I mean, come on, don't be a dumbass. But if you do leave and you've people. left the counter relatively, you know, <laughs> relatively clean, don't let, you know, don't set your dog up for failure. So the first thing about that is knowing that that those behaviors are, the other thing is, is if you leave your house and your dog cries when you leave, that is not separation anxiety. If you leave your house and your neighbors report that your dog cried for 12 hours straight, that is probably some form of separation. Yeah, exactly. So the dog who cries a little bit is not separation anxiety. That is normal. If I leave the house, Cody sounds like the hound of the basket. She's howling and carrying on. Tag howls every time I leave. He howls and I've waited outside to see. Which, by the way, if you've never heard a border border collie howl, oh my god, I should try to catch it on video. Um, it's pathetic. Yeah, no, she sounds like yeah, she sounds like a like a peacock swallowing a howler yeah. monkey. It's not a good. It's not a good sound. Yes, yes. and it goes on for five minutes ish. If I were to time it, it feels like feels like more. I don't know what triggers it. He doesn't do it every time. Sometimes it starts off as yipping that accidentally falls into howling. Um, and he's the only one that does it now um, of the dogs that I have in the house. He's He used to have other dogs that would join in with him, but now he's the only one that does it. And eventually he gets bored and he's not stressed. He doesn't, you know, he's not panicking or anything. He just apparently likes the sound of his own singing voice, but he's kind of like that drunk guy at karaoke who thinks they can sing but really can't. <laughs> so, oh Lord, I can't even sum up on this one. We've kind of went all over the map. Well, so, so under, so the first thing is absolutely, you have to understand, try to understand what is and isn't separation anxiety. And if you have a question, go to a dog trainer, 
they're the first line because there's no point if you're not certain don't go to behaviorists because they are very expensive and they have a very long waiting list but once you've gone to a trainer and they've told you one or the other then you can start going down the line and some trainers will handle it and some trainers won't and some trainers will recommend drugs and some trainers won't and just follow your instinct and your gut on that um and make sure that you build resilience because because of these we've got two that are of the four that we described we have one is boredom so the first thing is again make sure your dog isn't bored make sure your dog has a fantastic life when you're not home so that when you are home they're sleeping it off yeah to the best of your ability the second thing is is in yeah inoculate as best you can your dog against um against fear and against Mm -hmm the inability to function with frustration. And there are a lot of tools and techniques that can be used with that. Just call a trainer and um, make a couple of appointments to help, to give you the tools to help you um, work through some of these, these behaviors when it comes to fear and anxiety. And the last is try to ensure that your relationship with your dog is solid. It's not about your dog. This is not like I've been home all week and my dog is scared. I'm leaving. It, it's as much more about the dog is not certain what the hell is going to happen when you come home. And so the dog freaks out and, and the relationship is a little bit broken. So if you have a relationship where you find yourself um, yelling at your dog on a regular basis or giving a bunch of commands that your dog ignores on a, ba- on a regular basis, or you just feel there's lack of clarity in the communication between you and your dog, or you're constantly pestering your dog, those are all signals that your dog is living in a life that is out of their control and they cannot control the outcome. And that's when you're going to start seeing manifestations that are going to be frustration and anxiety based. So go to a trainer right now and clarify that's the signaling process so that your dog is understanding X behavior equals Y consequence. And Y consequence can always be a treat or always be a punisher or always be negative reinforcement. It's not about what the consequence is. It's about that it should always be the same. Yeah. There should not be, there should not, your dog should not have to guess what jumping on a human being means. It should always mean the same thing. Jumping on the couch should always be met with the exact same response. Coming home should not be a chaotic spinning maelstrom of screaming and yelling and, and, and pushing the dog down and, and interacting in a heightened arousal state with your dog, because that's going to lead the dog to a heightened, even more heightened arousal. And if we look at the breeds that were indicated earlier, a lot of those breeds do what we call stressing up, which means the more you yell and, and, get in their face and get upset with them, the more their stress, their actual worry and fear is going to manifest as a mania, of, as a manic behavior. Um, we see that a lot, of course, in wimes because they stress up. We're going to see it in the Labrador retrievers because, of course, they're going to generally stress up if they stress at all. Their labs, they're pretty they're not a super stressy breed. Um, you're going to see it in the German shepherds who are already on the verge of stressing up 24 seven, depending on their breeding. Um, I can't speak for whippets. I've, I've known like whippets. 10 whippets. Um, 
But, but if your dog tends to stress up anyway, if, if, and why, by that, I mean, if you go, Hey, to your dog, they're going to show a couple behaviors. And if one of those behaviors is getting themselves spun up, that's going to lead to more frustration. That's going to lead to more anxiety. That's going to lead to a, a, a worsening and, de- and degre- degenerating relationship between your dog and yourself because you're probably yelling at your dog for the heightened arousal in the first place. The more you're yelling, the more they're getting spun up and the more the whole thing amplifies and doubles down on itself. So the what we're going to kind of end with is know your dog, know what you've already built into your dog, learn to kind of tell the difference between my puppy's eating the shoe because I shouldn't have left my puppy alone with a shoe. And my dog just spent six hours clawing and screaming and drooling on the back door. That's, that's not right. Yeah. Uh, that's a problem. Uh, the dog who runs the whole day from window to window, to window, to window, barking and drooling on your window. And you'd see signs that dog's in trouble. That dog's in a terrible mental state. That dog needs help. So, and I would say too, just don't be afraid to reach out. Don't be afraid to reach out and know when you do reach out that you may need to take a look at your relationship with your dog and make some adjustments. And it's not a, it's not a character judgment on you. It's not anything other than you just might need to change course in the kind of ways that you interact with your dog so that you can have the kind of relationship with your dog that you actually want. So it'll get you where you need to go. You just might have to take a different road to get there. And if you're dealing with any of these problems, the road you're on is probably not going to be super short. Yeah. So please... I'm not going to speak about training styles. I mean, that is our job here is never going to be avoid XYZ trainer. However, I am going to state that coming from a a mostly rewards-based system, I can absolutely smash the shit out of a dog with punishment to the point where they are afraid to move. And that will absolutely solve your problem. And that is ethically pretty much in the same boat as just tranking your dog into a stupor. Yeah. It is a shitty thing They're, to do to an both animal. Both extremes are not. Uh, buy a house plant. Yeah. Both extremes are yeah, not buy okay. Buy a house plant. Yeah. No. So if you have a trainer who's like, oh, we can do this. We'll just punish the shit out of your dog for the behavior that is not addressing the underlying mental state. And all that's going to do is make your dog's life a misery. Yes. Your life might be better, but there are two ends to this leash and it's vitally important that we respect and be respectful of both ends of the leash. And so what Emily was talking about earlier with using medication, that helps your end of the leash, the human end Mm -hmm. of the leash. And that's appropriate. We can't forget that end of the leash. But my pushback on that was I really, and she, of course, too, we both believe that both ends of the leash need to be addressed. And that's what's kind of nice about having two different perspectives on this is, is when you have when you have a trainer who's looking at both ends and that's what you want, they're going to be respectful of both Mm -hmm. ends. And so I'm going to urge anybody who's dealing with these problems, please talk to your trainer, whoever you choose and make sure they're just not going to flatten the shit out of your dog or drug your dog into a stupor that they're actually going to work on creating the resilience that your dog needs so that they can cope with the fact that you're leaving the house. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So there was like 
we beat that horse. I think so. I think so. And there was a bunch of good stuff in there. And there's a bunch of good stuff to explore later, which we will absolutely do because. Yeah, I think it was actually really pretty good. Uh, Sometimes I'm impressed with ourselves. So we want to say we are shocked. This is going to be episode number 12, assuming I can edit it in our new editing software. We'll see how that plays out. Um, It'll be episode number 12. And we've had over 700 downloads. I'm just floored. So I want to thank, I want to say thank you to everybody who's tolerated the subpar editing and the sketchy sound, uh, sound sometimes yeah sometimes the sound quality has been somewhat painful and we apologize we're always trying to improve that um check out our show notes thank you very much uh like rate review share um we appreciate everybody and thank you all have a fantastic afternoon and we will catch you on the flip side next week and uh spend your dog's best life.